Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week, Chris? Doing very well, Eric. Looking forward to Thanksgiving and family and football. Yes, it, it is Thanksgiving week as this episode drops in, in the U.S. here, and uh, we're obviously wishing all of you a uh, very happy holiday and safe travels uh, wherever you may be headed or uh, for your uh, family and friends coming in your way. And, and for our international listeners, hoping you get uh, some uh, time uh, for relaxation uh, here as well. But before we get to that, it's been a uh, fairly momentous uh, week in the sports industry, uh, you know, particularly there was a 24-hour period here. We had several major deals, one of the more frenetic days in the business in, in recent history with a uh, record-setting naming rights deal in the United States, a major uh, pending team sale in the uh, National Hockey League, and a uh, major data deal involving the National Basketball Association. We're going to get into all of that. But first, uh, uh, this, uh, we're going to uh, speak with a couple of executives from uh, NFT company that we've uh, been talking a lot about in recent weeks. Uh, so rare, and we've got their both their CEO and their COO, Nicholas Julia and Ryan Spoon, with us to break down uh, how they're sort of reshaping uh, what the future of uh, fan experience looks like. So stay tuned for that conversation, and then Chris and I will be back with you on the other side to break down the news of the week. We're very pleased to have as our guests on Sport Business Finance Weekly from So Rare, Nicholas Julia, Chief Executive and Co-Founder, and Ryan Spoon, Chief Operating Officer. The France-based football-focused platform has made a significant impact in the quickly developing realms of non-fungible tokens, digital collectibles, and fantasy sports, signing large-scale packs with the Bundesliga and La Liga, as well as numerous individual clubs. And in September, So Rare completed a $680 million funding round led by Japanese conglomerate SoftBank that is touted as the largest Series B round in European history and values the company at $4.3 billion. Prior to founding So Rare in 2018, Julia developed an extensive track record in blockchain and artificial intelligence technologies. Spoon, meanwhile, is well known to many in the U.S. sports industry through his prior senior executive roles at ESPN and American Sportsbook Bet MGM. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks, thanks for having us. So, Nicholas, I'll start with you. Let's go back to the sort of the founding of the company. And as I indicated, you had been involved in some other areas, uh, you know, had experience in blockchain, had experience in AI. What was the inspiration to put together So Rare and go in this direction? Yeah, I've been in the blockchain space for more than six years. And three years ago, I saw a new technology, a new standard, like an infungible tokens, as you, as you said in the intro. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, it's going to change the way people people own stuff online. And when I, you know, I, I had a deeper look at this NFTs, one of the cool properties I saw is digital scarcity. And then I was like, okay, in, in the physical world, we have been collecting for centuries. And now we have a way to collect something digitally. We have a way to, you know, to say if we issue 100 editions of LeBron, it cannot be one more. And that was fascinating to me, fascinating 
to me, but just the technology. Um, and as a huge sport fan, I was like, let's bring the top leagues, the top clubs, the top players on top of it so that we have this emotional connection with this uh, rare digital item. That was the second pillar in my thinking. And then I was like, okay, this could be massive, but we want more. We want fans to engage with this officially licensed NFTs. So not only to collect and to trade them, but also to play with them, to engage with them every day. And that's the third pillar. That's the fantasy element because you own this NFT that you can collect and that you can trade. You can enter cool fantasy games that we operate in our platform. So with these three pillars, the tech, the NFT platform, the partnerships, and then the design, the gaming element, we started iterating in the product and started building SAR. Great. Ryan, you joined uh, BetMGM, I believe it was about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Uh, you more recently now obviously joined So Rare. What motivated you to join the company? And do you think there's some kind of intersection between the betting space and the NFT space based on kind of your experience? Yeah. So, look, I loved ESPN. I loved BetMGM. And this move has nothing to do with BetMGM or the growth there. It's pretty staggering. It's kind of intoxicating work-wise and, and intellectually. A couple things. First, it's an interesting space and an interesting moment in time. The way I've kind of described it, and I got my head around it, I really believe this is the moment in time for the company, for the space. Two years from now, it's probably too late. Two years ago, it might be premature. You have the collision of a lot of factors happening at this exact moment, which are enabling what Nicola and team have already, you know, kind of wowed with this just massive growth ramp and potential. And that is really the force of a lot of factors coming in at once. So there's the timing side. There's the really interesting personal side of, first of all, you see on the video, I I'm an avid collector. I have thousands of cards. I love this stuff. I spent my career at ESPN and built fantasy. Everything kind of fits together in this perfect world. And it's just an intersection of a lot of my personal passions where I spend my time and uh, all too much of my money. So that fits nicely. And then as I got to know Nicola, like just I'm massively impressed with him and the team and the vision. And obviously when you join a company, it's about the partnership and the teamwork. And we've spent a lot of time getting to know each other. And so all those things together between the team, the space, and the personal passion, it's the way I describe it is when I first talked to Nico and team, I obviously was interested in attracting the concept. And then I didn't sleep for a few days. And my brain just kept thinking about what all these things mean and what it can be. And I said, oh, here we go because I couldn't shut that part of my brain off. On the connection between this space and others, I would say I don't. they're not directly connected. I liken this actually much more in the way that I think about what the product can and should be is around the collecting aspect. So the collectible, and I think we should make it so that if you're a fan and you don't play the game, you should have every bit as much emotion and enjoyment out of what we provide and the gaming aspect and the gaming being much more around fantasy and kind of, uh, you know, the realm that we obviously had a lot of success with at ESPN. That was season long. The beautiful part about what's happening now in this, in So Rare is it can mean a bunch of different things. You can play actively for a week 
or a series of events or a league. You could also be a collector and hold for years and be really and do it as someone who appreciates the art of it, the athlete, the team. And so we're a lot of things to a lot of people. And that's what I think is so attractive about this. It's, it's a lot of potential audiences and products. So Nico, you, you described the, the product a little bit before, but there's a lot of different other NFT players out there, a lot of different ways to play fantasy sports in, in different forms. Where do you see your particular differentiating element compared to all the other competition out there? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So let, let's first have a look at the NFT space in general. I think what set us apart in the broader NFT space, which by the way is a technology. So there's going to be like many successful companies built on top, the same that's on mobile and on the web, We you know, like the sports industry. So a lot of success, successful companies. So what set us apart, I think, is the utility that we give to the NFTs. The fact that, yes, you can collect them. Yes, you can trade them. But every day you can do something cool with them. You can enter this fantasy game that we developed with many game modes. You can also enter some side games that the community or like gaming studios have built on top of us. So you have this additional utility by side games that are being built on top. And you have the utility in the physical world. Like a couple of weeks ago, the top performers in the fantasy game won NFTs that were tickets to enter El Clasico, which is one of the top soccer games. And so you have all this utility that is really baked in the product and that is at the center of the product that totally set us apart in the broader space, I think. And then when you look at the fantasy space in general, as you said, like, and as we all know here, a lot of successful companies already in the space. So I, I see the space as you have the free to players, you have the like gambling players, and then we are opening a third way, which is again, a, this intersection of NFT collectibles and fantasy, where you have a fantasy with an open market of NFT collectibles. So it's playing fantasy, but in a totally new and different way where fans truly own the game in the form of this NFT collectible. So I, I guess it's, it's, it's a new form of playing fantasy. Ryan, when you think about the business model and how So Rare makes money, could you explain that a little bit? And also, do you ex- expect the monetization plan to evolve or, over time? How would you describe the business plan and kind of where you're going with that in terms of, uh, of, of making money? So the good news is it's working. So there's a couple elements to what it can be, what it is today. And Nico used the word scarcity. And I think that's a really important, you know, that's a word that's used throughout the day and in all the meetings. Today, when cards are released and they are quote unquote minted, there is a entry card, which is great. It's free to play. You can't buy or sell. You can unlock them and reward them. And we think that that's a very important part of the gameplay and so forth. And then the scarcities come out. So there's a one out of a, th- and, th- and this is how it works today in soccer, football. And obviously with seasons and new sports, we can reimagine some of this, but you have a scarcity. Every player has 1,111 cards, a thousand yellows, a hundred reds, 10 blues, one out of one, the unique. When those are minted, they go to auction. So we're not setting a price. The market kind of dictates them and purchases them you know that is kind of today the core part of the business those can then be bought and sold and traded on the on the marketplace as well there's also a very healthy dynamic between those cards being traded no different than you know a lot of the cards behind me the physical cards i buy and sell on ebay 
or for the higher end ones on a golden auctions. Um, so there's that dynamic as well. And it's, it's been remarkably healthy uh, on kind of usage, users, activity per user. And one of the nice things about that business is users kind of uh, accelerate throughout. So users can choose to play at scarcities more than one out of a thousand and build kind of deep rosters or some of the collectors or, or fans might say they want higher end. And I, again, coming from someone who collects a lot of the physical that's very akin to kind of the traditional world where for the highest end products, there's things like flawless national treasures. And then there's, you know, middle prism and lower, but we think it's important to have offerings, products, gameplay for all levels of players and fans. Nicholas, I, I mentioned your uh, deal making before and some of your, uh, you know, premier partnerships with Bundesliga, La Liga, others. How did you sort of go about them, getting them to trust you? And what's been sort of the approach now and going forward in terms of your uh, rights holder deal making? Yeah, I think that what they like is that we are offering them a new stream first, you know, like in, in a period in time where they, they, they definitely need it. A second one for European soccer clubs is that we are expanding their audience in new markets like the US and Asia where they, they want to, to, to expand their reach. And the third like, uh, important point for them is that we're offering a cool product for the fans. So when you think about it, we are bringing new stream, more audience and a cool product. And it's a truly like it's a new product, not competing with existing partners. So it's it's something that is not endangering the existing partnerships. So there's only upside for them to partner with us. So that has been the you know the pitch since day one to them, and it's, it's it remains the same. And um, and so we started with Socom and and now with this fundraising and and the team building and of course the the, the arrival of Ryan as CEO and board member of this company, expanding also to uh, to other sports. And uh, hopefully next year, launching uh, cool products for U.S. sports. Ryan, to that point, when you think about the U.S., there are some deals that have already been done. The NFL and Dapper Labs, MLB and, and Candy Digital. But is your product a different lane or a different type of right? How do you think about that in the, in the context of other companies that are out there? Yeah, look, look I think this is, a, this is an important point. And I also think it's an important point about our mission and focus, which is obviously NFTs as a concept are big. They're emerging. They can also mean a lot of different things. There's a lot of different ways that something can be collectible or minted or you know, an NFT. Our space is using the NFTs for gameplay and for fantasy. And, you know, you see this in soccer as well. There are examples of athletes or so forth who create, you know, a collectible. But for the gameplay side, that's our bread and butter. That's our exclusivity. Uh, And that's what makes us special and what I think we are uniquely positioned for. So, you know, in the U.S., the examples you gave are are different than uh, where we want to play and where I think we're uniquely positioned to play. I also think for what it's worth, that's a lot of the attraction that I personally have as someone who is now working in the company, but also as someone who, you know, going through this was playing and so forth. It's the, what I think makes so rare magical is the NFT itself is great. The technology enables that the vision and so forth, the collectible, the, the buy and sell side, that's all great, but it's the utility that that provides into the gameplay, which is what I think makes it really unique and special. And that's kind of a very important differentiator. 
Nicholas, I want to drill a little bit more into the recent fundraising round that I mentioned at the outset here. That's, uh, you know, obviously a very big and very healthy round. Was there any sort of trepidation about taking on so much money from these investors who are obviously looking for a return? And in terms of choosing your partners, you know, what was it about SoftBank and the others that made them the designated choice that these are the folks that you want to go to battle with? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we were in this lucky position where the company has been profitable almost from day one with, you know, like the biggest growth that any company has seen, uh, at least in Europe, and all this long-term deals that we, we are putting together with the partners. So we, we were in this position where we, we, we were lucky to, to have a lot of offers for this Series B. And so we wanted not only to have long-term partner, like putting the, the, you know, the, the right amount of money to de- for the company to develop, but also to bring something special. And so SoftBank and Marcelo Claure in particular was really uniquely positioned. First, he has been helping us way before the investment of SoftBank. He's a real sport passionate. He owns several soccer clubs. And so yeah, he's bringing something special to the table and he knows deeply what we are doing, our product and where we want to go in the coming years. And I think it's a perfect complement to Benchmark. Peter Fenton in particular, they help us. They led the series earlier this year. And they are famous, of course, for investing early in many iconic consumer companies and uh, in the company building side of things. They are truly exceptional too. So I think we have now like a really strong board of partners on board. Ryan, beyond your uh, your capital raise, there have been tremendous amount of capital raises over the last, I guess, two or three months in the NFT space, loosely speaking. Now, what's your view on all the capital rushing into the space? Is it justified? Is it overhyped? And do you think that is going to continue that kind of investor enthusiasm over the next 12 months? I don't want to speak for other companies or other businesses. Um, I can speak to ours, which is it's a remarkable opportunity in business. And I think that's recognized by the team, which is still very small, uh, obviously quickly growing. And you know that's, that's a absolute priority of ours. It's recognized that that was a lot of my attraction. And it's certainly recognized by the investors and by our partners in soccer and hopefully future partners. One way to think about it is, having been at ESPN, I know the importance of fantasy to digital and now increasingly to TV and to fandom and to viewership. And I can, with pretty strong conviction and data, say that fantasy drives deeper engagement and increased fandom and broadened fandom. That's important. I can. We know how big and fast growing the collectible market is and what that does for fandom, right? Like I have a massive, I love RJ Barrett. I also have a massive RJ Barrett collection. I watch a lot more Nick games than I ever thought I would in my life. And we know how, how big just the broad kind of fandom and, and appeal side and now the crypto side is and how fast that's growing. The unique part here is it's all of those combined. That's the potential. And so the addressable market and opportunity is, can actually be, and I hope is, and I think we have reason to believe, is bigger than any one of those verticals directly. If we do a good job with the game, with the collecting side, we have an opportunity to change the way people think about fandom and playing with other fans. And so I think that drives a lot of the interest 
on the investor side. And certainly that drives a lot of the uh, traction on the business side. And sort of building off of that, Nicholas, uh, as you look to sort of uh, further on this growth curve that uh, Ryan's just articulated here, what's sort of the marketing plan? Where do you sort of uh, look to be placing your bets to help make so rare more of a household name? Yeah. So I think that's something that we haven't we haven't really touched on is everything we achieved so far. So like more than 600,000 uh, users and uh, more than 200 million in, in sales this year has been done organically. So friends bringing friends. So we are yet to start paid marketing campaigns. So we're going to start doing it in the coming months. First, we're going to do it with our partners. So the clubs and the leagues. So in our contracts, we have all this marketing rights that we're going to start activating in the coming months. Second, we have big plans and, and maybe Ryan can touch on it around content and everything we're going to do before the games, during the game, after the games to drive more uh, engagement and, and user acquisition. And then we're going to iterate as well around, you know, social media, paid acquisition and find the, the right channels around it. So we are just getting started here. Ryan, maybe you could touch on the content piece a little bit. How do you think about kind of the broader content ecosystem and things that you want to do to drive that engagement? What, what are your plans there? The plans are, are I mean, it's been three weeks. <laughs> I have ideas. I don't know. Plan is the best word. I mean, we have enviable position, in my opinion, of having really great alignment with our partners. And so that means that, and partners, there's a whole set of data that we sit on on the marketplace, which is really interesting. What happens when a player has a certain uh, result and that matches a certain scarcity and that then translates into a, a marketplace dynamic? I think that itself is really interesting. By the way, you're seeing some some people in I think BetMGM is doing a good job there uncovering data for some of the content side. You're seeing Golden and so forth doing really interesting work there. But our partners are the athletes, are the teams, are the leagues, and we're all aligned there. And I think there's some really interesting things we can do together that uh, provide unique content. What, what I don't think is interesting is, is trying to compete on news or results or the stuff that you know, in my old job, they do a really good job of that. That's not our lane. Our lane is, and I've always thought content is about how do you create something unique and special? And ultimately that's what resonates. That, that's why you guys are so good at what you do. You have a lane and you go really deep in it. And I think our lane is pretty unique there, but right now it's a lot of ideas. Uh, plans coming. <laughs> Well, we will be continuing to track that across all the uh, sport business platforms as SoRare is uh, clearly one of the uh, foremost companies to watch in this space. But for now, we want to thank Ryan Spoon and Nicholas Julia for spending this time with us. Thank Thank you you so much. much. Appreciate it. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Nicholas Julia and Ryan Spoon from So Rare again for spending that time with us here. And uh, shifting to the news of the week, a lot of folks in the uh, industry are looking to get a lot of major business done before the uh, Thanksgiving holiday in the United States because we've had a uh, frenetic run of major deals here. And we're, we're going to start with the, uh, the probably the biggest headline, biggest headline perhaps that we've had in a while in terms of uh, what is believed to be the largest na- uh, facility naming rights deal in U.S. sports history. 
we're a cryptocurrency company, crypto.com, and they've already had a number of deals, uh, perhaps most notably a New Jersey patch agreement with the NBA's Philadelphia 76ers. They've come in and they've taken the naming rights for what has been known as the Staples Center in downtown Los Angeles, California, uh, since that uh, arena's inception in 1999. Crypto.com is coming in and taking the naming rights in a deal uh, reported to be 20 years and $700 million. And this uh, uh, believed to set a new standard uh, for uh, this type of sponsorship, the SoFi Stadium deal in neighboring Inglewood, California, estimated at $600 million. And then across the street, the uh, forthcoming arena for the Los Angeles Clippers and their new deal with Intuit that was pegged at 23 years and about a half billion dollars. So now we're inching up that much more to $700 million here. And interesting on a couple of levels here, not only was this a record price for a renaming and not a new venue here, but not remotely established category. This is not financial services, not airlines, not anything that you might expect. Uh, This is a brand new category. And this is a company that really feels like, uh, you know, this is the time to lean on the accelerator and, and try to really make a market for themselves. Well, Eric, I think that's part of what's driving some of these deals. The fact that crypto is an emerging product, at least for the mainstream of people in the U.S., And I think these companies view these associations with big leagues, big teams, big organizations in the sports space as great ways of driving credibility, driving more, you know, broader adoption. And so the the, the gold rush is on. And and obviously, this is great for the folks in LA. There was the FTX deal uh, in Miami a while back, which which was a fairly big naming rights deal, but not as big as this. And we've seen others. We've seen Socios. A a, a modest uh, 135. Exactly, 145, and we've seen Socios. Yep, we've seen Socios uh, do some deals with teams. They're not an exchange, but more of a token company. And I think this is just going to continue. And it's great news for sports teams and leagues. Really, this is this is a this is a great opportunity for them. Yeah, and we've kind of alluded to this uh, with some of the prior deals. You know, baseball's got a league-level deal in this category. UFC's got a league-level deal in this category. You know, we've had, a, as we mentioned, a number of other sort of uh, smaller venue uh, rights deals, uh, jersey entitlements and the like. Portland Trailblazers are also in, in the crypto space with their jersey deal. But this just sort of sets it to a whole other level here. And again, you know, if you're, for any of these teams and leagues, this is just a whole new category that, you know, before the pandemic and you know, certainly three to five years ago, not really something, you know, high up in, in any of the long range planning in terms of where money was going to be coming from. And particularly, you look at some of the other segments of what the traditional revenue lines are, you know, we're still trying to find our way vis-a-vis attendance and what the long-term patterns on ticket pricing and attendance are going to be with the pandemic. You know, we've got a regional sports network business, uh, you know, in sort of uh, complete stress. And so to have a new category come in like this, you know, with a bunch of eager spenders, you know, for those running leagues and teams, this is, this is a nice balm. Imagine what the folks at the NFL are thinking, which really haven't fully jumped into the certainly the crypto exchange space yet. They're they're evaluating it. Uh, they have not done team or league deals other than in some of the peripheral categories like Socios with some teams and Dapper for 
the video NFTs, but there's going to be big upside for a league like the NFL and their participating teams. And I'm sure they're happy to see these big numbers because everybody's going to kind of say, well, if they got that much, how much should I be getting? And I think it's just going to accelerate. And as long as you have a couple of companies out there, crypto.com, FTX, uh, in a different way, I think even so rare- yeah, even so rare now, which is an, an exchange, they may start doing consumer kind of marketing, which which was alluded to in our interview. So I think this category, along with betting, is really lifting spirits uh, despite a tough eighteen months with the pandemic. Yeah, and and that and that what you described just fits right into the NFL playbook. That they were not the first on betting; they were not the first on a number of other categories. You know, they're it's not their mo to be the first to the party, but they they make a pretty big entrance once they get there. And I would expect uh, nothing less in this category for the NFL. Absolutely, and and Super Bowl is coming up. Who knows what we're going to see there? But kind of even going forward, I think it's going to be a big opportunity for uh, for the league and the teams. Yeah. And, you know, there's more Jersey patch deals out there. There's, uh, you know, other venue uh, packs, uh, naming rights packs coming up for expiration. There's still a lot of inventory out there. You know, we've got a, you know, 130 plus teams just in uh, North America to say nothing of other parts of the world here that there's still plenty of inventory for the taking here. So it's, it's a red hot space that uh, we're going to be continuing to watch here. And uh, another space that we've uh, continued to track and talk a lot about is the sports data space. And we had another really big deal in that category this week where the NBA did a long-term extension of their existing rights pact with Sport Radar, who obviously is in a uh, vigorous uh, fight for market share and superiority with key rivals such as Genius Sports. Well, Sport Radar has been aligned for uh, the last five years or so with the NBA. They've come in, they've two years left on the existing deal. Well, the new term is going to tack on another eight years to that and can take them to the uh, 2032 timeframe. And what's notable about this one, among other elements, is there's equity part of this, that the NBA is now a 3% owner of Sport Radar. There's a series of tranches that will vest over the time period of this new term. But the uh, the NBA is now an equity holder of a publicly traded company that uh, has some pretty aggressive growth targets. And along with that, Sport Radar came out with their quarterly earnings, pretty strong growth across the board in terms of revenue and earnings. And this NBA deal is uh, part of a pretty fervent push for them into the United States market where they, they see a lot of upside uh, here in the U.S. in terms of where their future pathway is going to go. Yeah, this is certainly an important relationship for Sport Radar, and and again, this deal is is more or less an extension and expansion of what they already had. But what what I guess stood out most to me was this ten year term. I mean, that is a long time in an emerging area like sports data and betting and and new technology. And I think what what drives that in part is giving an incentive for both parties to invest in collaborative initiatives and, and growing the pie together. I think also it's helpful to a company like Sport Radar to have a longer term because even though the rights fees may be expensive or the costs overall may be expensive, certainly in the early years, as you think about down the line through the growth of the sports betting sector, this could be a really attractive deal for them in the out years. And so I think that long term is, is really critical. Yeah. And this is another thing where relationships really matter in this business. I mean, it's, it's you know, 
People say that a lot and it sort of get risk of seeming trite, but it, it really does matter that you listen to really both sides of the uh, uh, the table in this particular relationship, and particularly Sport Radar, to listen to them talk about Adam Silver and the other folks at the NBA and, you know, calling them visionaries and, you know, really having a very deep ideological alignment of where they see the future of fan engagement going and the future of digital product development going and on and on down the line that, This was much more than just licensing IP and getting global data rights, which obviously are critical to Sport Radar, and that's a fundamental part of this deal. But there's something kind of deeper going on here where they they really are kind of arm in arm and, you know, a very like mind of sort of seeing where they want to go together in terms of building what, uh, you know, future fan product looks like. Yeah, and the you know as as Karsten said in some of his comments, the you know, the NBA has been very aggressive and innovative in what they've done in the digital space and in the betting space. It is probably the most global of the U.S. major sports, which I think is something that's very attractive to Sport Radar. It and a lot indeed. of those relationships, not only with Adam but with Ted Leonsis, Cuban Michael Jordan, who happened to be. I think on the stock exchange or ringing the bell with Karsten when they went Yeah, public. they're all long-term investors of the company. And Michael Jordan actually elevated not only his equity position, but he's now a formal advisor to the board of directors. Yeah. So I think, again, that those deep relationships are helpful. Uh, Sport Radar, as you know, Eric, also has, uh, has MLB uh, relationship in the U.S., an NHL relationship. Just re up the, the big NHL. NFL relationship. Yeah, the NFL relationship is is with genius, and then you have some other players in the space like IMG Arena, which tends to focus on golf and tennis. Uh, you've got Stats Perform slash Opta, which tends to focus on soccer in some markets. So the the the, the landscape has been divvied up a bit. I think there's going to be a fight around college sports and no some doubt. other areas, but but some of the big uh, the big rights have already been now spoken for. Yeah, and. Talking briefly with Karsten Coral, the uh, chief executive of Sport Radar, that he made it very clear that college is a big target for them, and they, you know, and and that really again speaks to what I said at the outset about the U.S. being a real key focus for them because they're as as big and successful and now publicly traded as Sport Radar is. You know, only seven percent of their current revenues come from the U.S. market, despite all the you know they've got three of the big four as you just described. But you know, relative to the overall scope of their worldwide business, still pretty tiny. And he he wants to change that, and, and you know, has the benefit of a lot of tailwind, given that we're just still in the early innings of legal uh, sports betting legalization in the United States. And, you know, a lot of the big population states are just now beginning to come online, you know, vis-a-vis New York, as we discussed last week, and, you know, maybe some others on on the way here. But, uh, you know, really wants to use the draft of that to really elevate what's going on for them in the United States. And, you know, he's got some targets here and, and, you know, has some key foundational pillars to work with beyond that. Yeah, and and now that a lot of the major rights deals have been secured, the question will be: Do companies like Sport Radar and Genius and and the others in the space look to do more M and A to have sort of inorganic growth? You know, how do they think about the the lanes that they swim in? Are they focused on data and tech? Do they get involved in this? media business and the affiliate business. Again, I think there's a lot of uh, decisions ahead for these companies, but they've set the table with a lot of great relationships and now they really need to execute. 
and it's going to bear watching here because uh, you know we're obviously painting a uh, an aggressive, optimistic picture. Sport Radar, and you talk to Carson and the others at the company; they're obviously very uh, bullish on where they're going, and and some of their numbers uh, bear them out that you know they're making money now. They continue to believe that they're going to make money on their existing and future deals. That this is not a company socked with a whole you know billions of dollars of debt, and you know, and still in a early loss leader position like a company like DraftKings or somebody else. But the the market really hasn't yet responded. Uh, you know, in the two plus months that uh, Sport Radar has been a public company, their stock still is hovering below the uh, IPO price. And you know, a lot of what we're laying out here and the company themselves has laid out had not been fully bought into by the investment market. And so that's that's going to be interesting to see at what point you know all of those kind of narratives merge up if they do. Yeah, no, that that's true on on the one hand, Eric. But on the other hand, they are trading at a pretty robust multiple of revenues, uh, and so I th- I think they are being to some degree rewarded for what the future might look like in terms of U.S. sports betting. But on the other hand, it is a competitive space. They and Genius have been slugging it out. Uh, there are the other players that I mentioned, IMG Arena, now public through Endeavor, Stats Perform. But what I would say more generally is, at least in the data space, you don't have 25 major companies, which is what you right. see in the sports betting operator space, where DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, but then there's 20 others. In the yep. in the in the kind of the data space, at least there's only three or four major ones. Uh, and so I think that is that is somewhat of an advantage, especially if they're they're locking in long-term deals. Yeah, and that really gets to your your initial point here that, you know, that whatever happens here, you know, within this smaller universe of competitors, they're locked in with the NBA for the next 10 years. And, you know, that in and of itself, and you know, as I said, they're they're they've made money on the current term. They feel like they're gonna continue to make money the way it's the new term is structured. That in and of itself, it may not match up their long-term aspirations, but that in and of itself is not a terrible place to be. Not at all. And I think the other thing to look at, particularly with the NBA, since their media rights are up, at least their domestic media rights are up in the next couple of years, what the next phase of those will be and how those tie in or don't tie in with their relationships with sportsbook operators and distributors like Sport Raider. I think there could be some creative things that happen there as well. Yeah, and, and Carson actually laid some clues to that, that the way that the deal, the new term is set up is that they do have the exclu- exclusive global data rights, but you know, sort of set up the possibility down the road and, and tied in maybe with the media rights deals, as you suggest, that there could be a way by mutual agreement to infuse in some other sort of specialist partner that you know, has a particular competency that Sport Radar doesn't necessarily speak directly to themselves, that they could weave in somebody else that could be additive and blending in with whatever the sort of future of media looks like. Yeah. No, there are a lot of options going forward. I guess the last point I'd make on Sport Radar and Genius really is the same. I mean, these companies have been around for a long time. They did not you know, they're not flash in the pan companies. Correct. They've worked hard for 20 years and, you know, maybe they got a little bit lucky with the PASPA rights, uh, the PASPA overturning here in the U.S., but these companies have worked hard to get to, to where they are. And I think that's kind of earned them the respect of, of some of the people in the, uh, in the sports industry. 
Yeah, and so uh, we're going to shift from uh, the data space now to a pretty big uh, pending deal in in the team side business here where uh, Fenway Sports Group, this is the parent organization of Major League Baseball's Boston Red Sox, Liverpool of the Premier League. Uh, they've got a NASCAR team, uh, majority owners in the New England Sports Network, uh, uh, Fenway Sports Management, a number of assets here. They are closing in on a deal where they would take on majority control of the NHL's Pittsburgh Penguins, which for more than the last two decades have been run by Ron Burkle and former Penguins star and current Hall of Famer Mario Lemieux. And this is interesting on a number of levels. Not only does it take FSG into hockey, but this is the first uh, sort of big acquisition since their, you know, pretty grand recapitalization back in the spring where Redbird Capital came in. They're an FSG partner. LeBron James and his partners traded in their Liverpool equity, and they're now FSG partners. Sam Kennedy, the uh, Boston Red Sox uh, president and chief executive. He was bumped up to the ownership level as well in the FSG cap table. So this this pending Penguins deal is really the first big move for them. And it also really kind of signals a more aggressive strategy for them that, you know, what John Henry and FSG have done is, you know, it was a lot of one-off deals where, you know, they had the opportunity to buy the Red Sox a couple of decades ago, and then Liverpool came along, and then they started the sports marketing firm and got into NASCAR and everything was sort of incremental, but now the Penguins deal really almost sort of feels like, and they've been open about signaling, particularly since this recapitalization, that they they want to take this sort of new set of uh, resources and really do multiple deals and and really sort of build this portfolio into something much bigger and much more holistic. And so, you know, while the the Penguins with five Stanley Cups, uh, you know, this is a momentous thing in and of itself, it really feels like just the start of something that's going to be carrying on for some time here with FSG. Uh, I agree with you, Eric, and I, I do think the big factor is the infusion, especially of Redbird and a private equity institutional investor in the mix, because I think they want to see rapid growth. Uh, it's not a family office. It's a it's a PE firm. They want to uh, basically acquire other assets. They want to leverage their scale. And I, I think this is the first of many things we'll see, whether it's other sports teams, whether it's media businesses, whether it's technology businesses. I do think Fenway is going to be increasingly aggressive, and uh, and, and I think that's going to be good for sellers of assets as well. Yeah, it's interesting here that uh, within FSG and, and people like Sam Kennedy and other folks, uh, you know, up and down the leadership team, you know, even though they're you know, first and foremost, and their base was as baseball team owners and operators, and obviously then got into soccer and auto racing and the other things I mentioned. You know, they've quietly been big, big time hockey fans. They've, you know, had multiple winter classics and other NHL events. You know, Sam Kennedy himself is a, you know, big hockey fan and, you know, other folks in the leadership team, you know, really have an, a, an affinity for the sport that, they, you know, this isn't just, you know, some sort of portfolio play or numbers play here that, you know, you've already got a really strong franchise with the Penguins that are perennially among the leaders in attendance and TV ratings and, you know, great legacy 
built up with the success of Lemieux and Yager and the other stars, uh, you know, through the team's lore and history, you know, there, there could be some really interesting things done here where the Penguins, you know, you take a strong franchise like that, you know, a, a hockey reverent organization like a number of these folks are, you put those two things together, this could get real interesting. This is really a fortunate uh, turn of events for Fenway. Not not only, as you say, is it a, a great franchise for those reasons you mentioned, but it's also an available franchise. And frankly, there just aren't that many available you know, control ownership stakes in the NHL or any of the major sports in the U.S. So for them, so quickly after having taken in the Redbird money to find this opportunity, I think it's pretty phenomenal. What will be interesting to me is to see whether the ultimate valuation of this uh, of this team hits the uh, magical $1 billion uh, level or not. I mean, there's some who are speculating it might be a little bit less, might be a little more. We'll see, uh, you know, what that interest level really does to the pricing of this team. Yeah, and, and then what that does for other teams up and down the NHL that have some other franchises that have been sort of rumored to be potentially going on the market at some point in the future, and you get to you know family transition times or whatever, and you know for a lot of reasons we described discussed in prior weeks with new media deals and, and some of the other things that the uh, league has done to build its worldwide profile that you know, there's a lot of people in the industry who believe that the NHL is a, is a big time buy right now. And this deal speaks to that and, you know, potentially could also elsewhere pretend not just with FSG in their own business, but, you know, other hockey deals. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, when you think about the NHL on a typical revenue, multiple value kind of a metric, it's an attractive buy vis-a-vis some of the other leagues. It's one of the leagues that you could potentially buy teams below a billion dollars. You can't do that probably in the NBA. I, I don't think you can do it in, and certainly not the NFL. So there's a lot of reasons why the league is positioned very well from a potential ownership standpoint. Plus, the league is doing, they're doing some good things with their media, with the betting space, with other initiatives they're taking on. And so I think you'll see more, certainly plenty of interest in the NHL. Just the question is how many teams actually do come up for sale. Yep, no doubt. Well, as we close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look ahead in the space and see what else is catching our eye, and particularly as we get uh, to and through the Thanksgiving holiday, and see what else uh, is uh, you know capturing our attention here. And Chris, I'll start with you. Yeah, the um, the the announcement that got my attention over the last week was the uh, the elevation of Zach Leonsis to president of media and new enterprises at Monumental Sports. As you know, Zach is the son of the principal owner, Ted Leonsis. Uh, Ted has been an innovator in so many ways in this uh, sports space, media and betting and, and new technology. And Zach has really followed in his footsteps and been a real partner to his dad. And will be interesting to see what this no, new role means for not only Zach, but the kinds of things that Monumental may uh, break ground on going forward. Yeah, it's really been a remarkable thing. You know, I, I've I've known Ted Leonsis and, and a number of his partners right from when they first bought the Capitals in 1999, and you know, then that was the beginning of you know building this whole empire that he's got now. And you know, you know, and, and being at games and other events and stuff that uh, you know Ted and his partners would have. You know, Zach was a little grade schooler at the time. You know, sort of towing along with the family, and you know, he's grown up to be a really remarkable executive. And, it, and it's an interesting thing because you know. 
the sports business has been, a, you know, a, a funny thing where it's often been tough for that sort of younger generation to follow in the footsteps of a, you know, an accomplished parent. But you know, Zach's really kind of done it on his own and done it on his own terms, and really kind of, you know, forged his his own way. And obviously, he's had you know help from his dad, but you know, he, you know, Zach's his own man too, and so you know, and, and a very bright one at that, and it's been a, a remarkable thing to see what he's done and, and how in the kind of role that he's got now positioning that business forward. Absolutely. And again, he has earned it, Eric. He brings a lot to the table. And again, more broadly, we'll be interested to see where that organization goes because they are always at the forefront of, of, of unique things in the sector. Yeah. And from my standpoint, you know, I talked a lot about baseball in prior weeks and we're still coming up, uh, you know, pretty close on the expiration of this labor pact. But I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction here is just as we're taping this. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, long awaited announcement that came down from the league that they have finally finalized plans that they're going to be providing furnished housing for nearly all of their affiliated minor league prospects. And this really kind of speaks to something, a real pain point in the business that you you know, minor league baseball in a normal non-pandemic year draws more than 40 million people. You know, one of the great grassroots elements that connects the sports industry with the fan. But it's been difficult for the actual players to make a go of it that, you know, the wages are low, you know, nothing like the kind of things that you get at the major league level and, and to try to deal with a lot of the additional living expenses you know, when they're sort of making, you know, minimum wage or, you know, below minimum wage, you know, as it prorates out uh, historically, it's been a really tough thing. And this is a pain point that's really now being addressed in a substantive way. And I think that's just going to make for a better product, a better fan experience, uh, and really just, again, lifts minor league baseball overall, you know, can get it back as we come out of the pandemic here to, you know, that great grassroots thing that's historically been. Yeah, well, there had been, as you know, Eric, a little bit of turmoil and change in the minor league space, irrespective of the pandemic, just due to the reduction in the number of affiliated teams and some of the other things that were going on in, in the MLB. And so I think that created some challenges. The pandemic created its own challenges. There isn't the same level of media rights or other revenues coming into minor league teams that you have in in the other, you know, kind of the major leagues. Uh, so I think this is a good step from the perspective of the players. I do think that kind of coming out of this, there may be some new kinds of business opportunities in minor league sports that haven't been available in the past. Again, whether that's taking advantage of technology, whether that's taking advantage of new media distribution, NFTs, whatever the case may be, I think there's going to be a renaissance in minor league sports that that could be pretty exciting and we'll see which uh, which direction it takes. And we'll uh, obviously be continuing to track that. But uh, for now, that's going to uh, wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, for Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. Uh, again, wish you a very happy Thanksgiving if you're celebrating. And uh, just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. We'll see you again next week.